get your Bible out and turn to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we've been during our Advent series this year. Luke in chapter 2. This morning as we look at this passage, you remember the theme for this year are milestone moments in the early life of our Savior during his early earthly journey, some of the keystone moments in his life. And this morning, we're, we're, really what we're looking at is the beginning of the transition of the people of God from the old covenant to the new covenant. That transition is happening uh, in some ways in the verses that we'll be looking at this morning. We'll be seeing that transition begin to take place. Jesus himself is the one to whom God's law has been pointing all along. Right? It was given to God's people as a guide. These are commandments from God, but it is also an arrow that is pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus perfectly embodied and fulfilled the law. And through his obedience to the law, his fulfillment of the law, he is transitioning the people of God into the new era of the new covenant. And so what we're going to do is observe Jesus's Jesus and his parents, we're going to watch them do things that you and I no longer have to do. It's no longer required of the people of God to do the things that we're going to see Jesus and his parents doing in this passage. And the reason is because Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He has brought the law to its perfect fulfillment in himself. And through his life and death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of the Spirit, he has in fact ushered in the new covenant era for the people of God. And in the new covenant, we relate differently to the law than they did during the old covenant. And so we'll see this transition begin to happen. I'm reading in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2 and I'm starting in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed 
and the sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you now that we've come to this point in our lives when we pause all other things and when we gather together as a family and when we sit at your table and meditate on your holy word. We do indeed believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed. We do indeed believe that this is not a regular or a normal book. This is not merely ink on paper, but it is your word, God. And so I pray that you would help us to handle it with care, to treat it as such, to understand it and to believe it, and to live accordingly. Amen. All right, well, let me just start by quoting a few words from Jesus himself about his own relationship to the law. While he was on earth, he had some things to say about the law. One of the things that he said is this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus saying he didn't come to get rid of the law. He didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to embody it. He came to obey it. The point being made here is that the law and the prophets were pointing ahead to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfect embodiment of the law. And he has fulfilled the law, not just for himself, but he has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He fulfilled the law for us. That's important. That is why our faith is not in ourselves. That is why our faith is not in our own ability to keep the law. But our faith is in Jesus Christ and his perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets on our behalf. That's an important point. I don't care how self-disciplined you are or how godly you are or how pious you are or how much you love God. None of us is able to perfectly fulfill the law on all points. None of us. That's bad news, except it's immediately followed by the good news that Jesus Christ himself has done what we could not do for ourselves. He is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, the reason that you and I are no longer compelled to keep the ceremonial law, right, those ceremonial aspects of the law, is not because Jesus came and abolished it. It's not, it's not because Jesus came and rendered the law irrelevant. It's because he came and fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. And now that part of the law has served its purpose. Jesus has fulfilled it. So now we're going to observe three specific ways that Jesus and his parents are observing and fulfilling the Old Testament law in this passage. The first way that the family's obeying the law is by having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. That's the law. And they're obeying it. Under the old covenant, circumcision is the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. It's a physical sign of the covenant. Covenant, it, it, it's a concept we think about a little bit. There's a school right next to us named Covenant. It's, a, it's an important concept, but it's not something that we think about much in our daily lives, in our, in our daily interactions. In this particular culture, covenant is not a word that comes up a whole lot. But in Old Testament times, and even in New Testament times, it was. Covenant was a very important point. It represented a significant 
relationship between two parties, a, a covenant, a, in theory, unbreakable bond between two parties. And oftentimes there were conditions involved in order for the covenant to be binding. And sometimes both parties had conditions they had to meet, and sometimes only one side had a condition they had to meet. But in either case, the covenant represented a bond between two parties that was in theory supposed to be unbreakable. And we see that the sign of the covenant is circumcision. And that, uh, the institution of that sign came way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 17 when God was interacting with Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And it's not just Abraham between me and you, but it's between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, Abraham. It's going to keep going and going and going. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this will be the sign of that. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's Genesis 17. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. That is a law. That is a command. And circumcision is a sign of being in a covenant relationship with God Almighty. It set the people of Israel apart different from other nations, God's special chosen people, God's treasured possession. And so, all little boys receive the sign of the covenant at age eight, eight days, in order to signify the covenant between God and his people. And so, in obedience to that, on the eighth day, Jesus too received the sign of the covenant on his body, marking him as a participant in the covenant that God established between himself and his chosen people. Now, as I pointed out earlier, we no longer, we no longer have to circumcise our boys on the eighth day because now we live under the new covenant. And the sign of being in the new covenant is not circumcision, but the sign of being in the new covenant is baptism. And that is a sign that we do indeed apply to our children and to all members of God's covenant family. Now, the second way that the, 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 the family of Jesus and Mary and Joseph are obeying the law is the fact that they're going to the temple and offering sacrifices for purification later. The law about purification is found in Leviticus 12. The sacrifices for purification are not offered on behalf of the child. They're offered on behalf of the mother who has given birth. Leviticus 12 basically says, God's law, Leviticus 12, says that if a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be unclean for seven days. On the eighth day, the baby shall be circumcised. Okay, we've done that. Then for the next 33 days, those are referred to as the days of the mom's purifying. And during that time, she's not allowed to touch anything holy. She's not allowed to go into the sanctuary. And then after those 33 days are completed, the days of her purifying, she shall bring to the priest a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And they offer it to the Lord to make atonement, not for the child, but 
for the mom. And so here in this passage, we find the family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus faithfully observing this part of the Old Testament law of Moses. That is exactly what they should be doing because the new covenant has not yet taken place. You, you didn't have to do that. We don't have to do that under the new covenant, but they had to do that because the new covenant is not yet taken effect. The ultimate sac- At this point in the story, when Jesus is, is a baby, the ultimate sacrificial lamb has not yet been offered for the people of God. At this point in the story, that ultimate spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world is only 40 days old. It's just a baby. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus continue to observe the ceremonial law. It is still in effect for the people of God. I think it's worth noting in passing, this is not the main point of the story, but it's worth noting that Mary and Joseph, it appears, were not able to afford an actual lamb to offer. And so they went with the option that was made available for poor people to keep this law. There were two tiers of keeping this law. You were allowed to go with a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That is a reminder, the fact that Mary and Joseph went with that option. It's a reminder that when God entered into the world in the form of a baby, he did not choose an affluent family. But in solidarity with the oppressed and with the overlooked, God incarnated into a family that was both pious and poor. So under the new covenant, which we are now part of, Wives are no longer required to go to the temple 40 days after they give birth and offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. They don't have to do that. Because under the new covenant, the eternal spotless lamb has been offered once for all to pay the price for all of our sins. And his sacrifice is sufficient. Okay, now the third way that this faithful family is obeying the Old Testament law is by presenting Jesus to the Lord. Because he is their firstborn, that is what they are supposed to do according to the law. Luke, the author of this book, who is probably, as far as we know, the only Gentile, non-Jewish author of any of the books of the Bible, he actually explains what's going on here for any Gentile readers, non-Jewish readers, who might not be familiar with this practice. He explains it. He says, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, in parentheses, as it is written in the law of the Lord. In case you don't know why they're doing this, it's in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That is a quote. Luke gives us that explanation. That's a quote from the book of Exodus in chapter 13. Where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Do you remember that? When God, interacting with Moses and liberating God's people from slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and he struck down the firstborn, and he made a point of saying, from here on out, all the firstborn, they're mine. They belong to me in a special way. I want you to set them aside for me. The first calf from a heifer, That's God's. That's God's calf. He gets that. The first lamb that your sheep has belongs to God. The first boy that your wife has, that's God's. God laid claim in a special way. Obviously, God owns everything, right? It's all God's. 
But he went out of his way to make a point that the firstborn in a special way belonged to me. They're set aside for me. And the way that that worked in real time, in real practice in ancient Israel, was that the firstborn animals were sacrificed to the Lord. Any firstborn animal. It's not a particularly affluent society, and it's not particularly easy to just give up your livestock. It's a sacrifice. The word sacrifice means you're making a sacrifice. And so the firstborn from all of the animals were sacrificed unto the Lord. And then the priests were allowed to eat the meat from those sacrifices, and that's how the priests got paid. But the firstborn sons, which were also set aside unto the Lord, were taken to the temple... They obviously were not sacrificed, but they were redeemed. They had to be redeemed. The parents had to bring five shekels of silver to pay to redeem their firstborn boys. They brought the kids to the temple, and they said, Look, Lord, this child is yours in a special way. We recognize that. We honor that. We're not resisting that. He's yours in a special way. You, God, have laid claim to all the firstborn of Israel. And we are now, Lord, paying the redemption price that is owed to you in order that we might bring this child home with us and raise him. That is what Mary and Joseph were doing with their little boy Jesus on this day. Think about that for a minute. That act is so loaded with theological significance, right? Not only are Mary and Joseph faithfully keeping covenant with God, right? This is a couple that is faithfully submitting to and obeying and honoring the law of the Lord. But in this act, in this act of obedience, God the Son is voluntarily and humbly submitting himself to the authority of God the Father. God the Son is fully God, fully God, fully equal with God, and yet, in this act of allowing himself to be dedicated to God in the temple, think about that. They're equal, equal in the Godhead, and yet the Son is allowing himself to be dedicated to God, saying, I am submitting myself to the authority of my Father. That is an amazing thing. He didn't have to do that. But what's happening here in the fulfillment of the law of Moses is a picture of the Son's willing and voluntary submission to the authority of the Father. And you and I can be so grateful for this moment of the Son being dedicated to the Father because the Son is here fulfilling the law on our behalf, submitting himself to the Father, being born under the authority of the law and perfectly fulfilling the law in order to redeem those who were condemned under the law. That's me and you. So we no longer have to take our firstborn sons to the temple in order to redeem them because God the Son has redeemed all of those, all of us who place our faith in him for salvation. And so in this text, we're not seeing the abolishing of the law. We're not seeing someone come along and say, well, that used to be important, but it's not important anymore. You can safely ignore it now. No, in this text, we're seeing the fulfilling of the law. As Christ brings the law to its climax and fulfills it in himself. And as I said earlier, this is kind of a hinge moment in the history of God's people, in the history of the world. We're watching this shift take place from old covenant to new covenant. 
And the reason that the shift is able to happen is because Jesus has perfectly embodied and fulfilled the law in a way that you and I could never do. And now we come to this part where this prophet Simeon announces the importance of this scene that's unfolding before our eyes. This guy Simeon, we don't know much about him. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere and then disappears. He has this one moment in the story. What we do know is that he's righteous and devout. We're told that. We do know that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we know that the Holy Spirit is upon him. We don't know how long he's been waiting. The implication is that he's been waiting a long time, probably a lifetime, and that he's grown old waiting. But he is not waiting without hope. He's waiting with confidence because the Holy Spirit has told him that he's not going to die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. Now he knows this, he believes it. There's no way he's going to die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. So he's just waiting. It's going to happen one day. And so he goes to the temple on this day to watch and to wait and to pray. Now you're probably picturing the guy standing at the entrance and checking babies as they pass through the gate. Uh, that's probably not quite what's going on here. You've got to remember the temple in Jerusalem is a 35-acre complex. Uh, it's big. Uh, it, there's not just one front door that he could stand by and check. Uh, it's not likely that he would have randomly bumped into Mary and Joseph. But of course, this is not a random story. This is a divinely appointed encounter. You'll notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times in these few verses. Right? God, the, Luke is making the point that God specifically is orchestrating this. God is at work here. We're told the Holy Spirit's on Simeon. We're told that the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon that one day before he dies, he'll see the Lord's Christ. Uh, we're, we're told that Simeon came to the temple that day in the Spirit. So God is certainly up to something here. Simeon takes Jesus into his arms, right? He's holding this baby. You picture this scene? This is the child that he's been waiting his whole life to encounter, that he's been promised, that he will not die until this moment happens. And now it's happening. And Simeon says, now I can die in peace, right? This, it, 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 he's fulfilled. This is the, the thing he's been waiting for has happened. And now he can die in peace because Simeon says, I have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Now everyone expected that the Messiah would bring salvation to the Jews. That was the idea, that was the plan, that was the expectation. He was a Jewish Messiah bringing salvation to the Jewish people, obviously, because the Jewish people are God's chosen people and they're his treasured possession. They're the ones that God has special favor upon. So, of course, the Messiah is going to come and bring salvation to the Jews. That's the way the story was being told and that's what everyone expected. But we've already noticed that this passage is a hinge passage, and that we're watching a transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We're seeing Christ bring the law to its culmination by fulfilling it in himself. And now we're starting to see the wide breadth of the New Covenant. It feels different than the Old Covenant. The Messiah is not just bringing salvation for God's chosen people, ethnic Israel. That might have been what people expected, but it's not what's happening. The Messiah is bringing salvation to the world, including the ceremonially unclean, law-breaking Gentiles, like me and like you 
and like in all probability Luke himself who's writing this account. Up to this point in the book of Luke, all the events that have been unfolding have been directly linked to the Jewish people, to Jewish prophecy, to the fulfilling of promises God made to the Jews. God is finally fulfilling all of these promises to his covenant people. He's sending a prophet like Elijah to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And up to this point, if you're reading the story for the first time, you would think that the Messiah was coming for the Jews only. It's the way it's being told. That this is a sacrifice that was going to be made for God's chosen people. But here we have this prophet Simeon announcing the good news that this gospel, this Savior, is actually, he's actually not just come for ethnic Israel. He has come to be the Savior of the Gentiles as well. God is going to be expanding the boundaries of his family exponentially. He is adopting the Gentiles, that's a big group of people, into his household. That is an amazing thing that we are privileged to be witnessing here. The household of God under the new covenant is not constructed along nationalistic or ethnic lines. It is constructed along the lines of faith. And not only do we have the first indications of the broadness of the blessing of the new covenant, but it's in this text that we also hear the first ominous note that sounded with regard to the ministry of Jesus. Simeon makes this prophecy. Mary and Joseph are marveling, no doubt at least in part, because they didn't expect the Gentiles to be included in this salvation. And so Simeon turns to them and blesses them and says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, no one will be able to be neutral towards this baby. Some will fall, some will rise. Some will hate the message of the cross. Some will actively oppose the message. Some will stumble over the cornerstone. He will be the cause of their falling. That was true in his own day when he walked the earth, and it's true now. But others will love the message of the gospel. They will embrace it with gladness and it will cause them to rise. The word used for rising there, the word literally there is resurrection. He will cause the fall of some and the resurrection of others. Always been that way. Your response to Christ will reveal what is in your heart. Simon turns, Simeon turns directly to Mary and says, your boy will be opposed and that's going to hurt you to see this happen. That will be like a sword through your own soul. But the effect of his ministry will be that the thoughts of people's hearts will be revealed. See, the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus has a way of confronting us. Of revealing what's really in our hearts and forcing us to respond. Without Christ revealing what's in our hearts... Humans tend to have a tendency to overestimate ourselves, to think that we're better than we really are. And in many ways, humans are very impressive. We bear the image of God, but that image is also broken. And sometimes our circumstances have a way of revealing what's really there, what's really in our hearts. This past week, I was reading a a, a book of reflections of a man who spent 13 years in a Russian prison, in the Russian gulag, during the early part of the 20th century. And he gained a lot of insights into humanity by viewing humanity under those 
conditions in, the, in Siberia, in the Russian gulag. Here's one insight that he made. He wrote this, In the gulag I learned how fragile human civilization and culture really is. A man becomes a beast in three weeks, given heavy labor, cold, hunger, and beatings. Three weeks. That's according to a man who saw the worst humanity has to offer. That all it takes for the corruption and depravity of our hearts to come out, to be revealed, it's in there. All it takes to bring it to the surface is three weeks of suffering. We all, we all think we're pretty nice when there's enough to go around, but watch and see what happens when resources run low. Then our true nature gets reveal, revealed. But here in this moment that we've been meditating on this morning, as Jesus steps into the world and embodies and obeys the law of the Lord, he basically turns to us, Jesus, and says, all right, no more games. Let's see what's in your heart. I am here to reveal what is in your heart. This is a message that Christ proclaims to all of us during this Christmas season. And this message is both uncomfortable and comforting all at the same time. Right? It starts by making us maybe a little uncomfortable, and it ends with comfort. This message is this. You are a sinner, and you need a Savior. That is why Jesus came. If we didn't need a Savior, he wouldn't have had to come. Jesus is here to save us from the consequences of our sin by perfectly keeping God's law himself and then bearing the punishment for our law-breaking in his body. That's what he came to do. That's the message. And many people are violently offended by that message when they hear it and they say, say things like, I don't like being called a sinner. I don't like to be told that I need a savior. I'm not really that bad. I don't think I deserve God's wrath. I generally do nice things. I mostly say nice things, and I don't need to hear this. What's with the negativity? I just want to hear about joy to the world. Others hear this message, and they respond with gladness, and they say, I am that bad. I do need a savior, and I'm so glad that that savior has come to bear my sin on the cross so that he could earn my forgiveness. That is why Jesus came. He kept the law in order to pay for the sins of lawbreakers like me and you. Those are the two responses that Jesus elicits from the world. We either receive that message or we reject it. That was true when he walked the earth. It is still true today. His message has not changed. The only question is how we respond to it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your message. Thank you for your presence on earth. Thank you for the conviction of sin and for the promise of redemption. Both. We recognize that your law is good, God. and We recognize that we were, despite our best efforts, not able to keep it. But we are so thankful that you sent someone who could and who did obey the law on all its points, who fulfilled it, didn't alter it, but fulfilled it, on our behalf. And we thank you that his righteousness is now imputed to us by grace through faith. We thank you for that Christmas message and how that really and truly does bring joy and peace. In Christ's name, amen.